Cheers. Another week, another podcast. Yeah. Okay, lead in, Dee. All right, so here we go. Title, title of the new legislation coming to a neighborhood near you. The Shadow Pandemic, Stopping Coercive and Controlling Behavior in Intimate Relationships. That's the name of a, of a bill that's being proposed in Parliament to make coercive control uh, a crime in Canada, adding it to the criminal code. So what do we think of this? Well, it, first of all, what's interesting is um, it's been around apparently in the UK since 2015. So it's labeled domestic abuse experts give to uh, a partner in a relationship where they're subjected to non-physical behaviors, including threats, humiliation, monitoring, isolation from friends and family, um, not being a good cook, um, and some, I'm just kidding about that, but, uh, and results in alterations of your mental health or how you care for your children. It was enacted in 2015 in England and Wales, became uh, first uh, in the world to do so uh, by criminalizing controlling behavior in relationships, making course of control punishable by up to five years in jail. Uh, women make up 95% of those experience course of control, 74% of the perpetrators are men. And um, and we don't, I don't, I can't find stats on conviction rates, but... In, Sorry, repeat, repeat the number of men who are, the, who are doing this? Right now, it's 74% from the UK study is, is men uh, because they're same, you know, same-sex partner relationships as well where this right. goes on. Um, there are, I suspect, uh, from what we learned from this one study, that there are a lot of men who would not come forward with a course of control allegations for a number of reasons, but it is, it, it talks about behaviors where isolating you from friends and family, controlling how much money you have or how you spend it, monitoring your activities, which we have already now under criminal harassment laws, putting you down, calling you names, uh, threatening to harm or kill you, which is an offense already called mm -hmm. threatening, um, damaging your property or household goods, which otherwise we refer to as mischief, forcing you to take part in criminal activity or child abuse, which we already have as crimes, um, and there's a ton of these, and it's basically in uh, relationships. But how, how do you determine what the serious effect is? And I had great concern when we first talked about this, was what's the legal test? You know, how is this not overly broad? But just bear with me for a second. So it, can, if it has to have a serious effect on you to constitute a, a crime that can then be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. So on at least two occasions, you have feared that violence will be used against you, or you felt serious alarm or distress that has a substantial effect on your day-to-day -day activities. The behavior has a substantial effect on you if it has caused you to change the way you live. For example, you may have changed the way you socialize. Your physical or mental health may have deteriorated. You may have changed the way you do household chores, which is a bit... Um, stereotypical. Essentially, we're talking about marriage, right? <laughs> it's criminalizing. Yeah. And it, it, there's no doubt that there's legitimacy that there is non-physical violence in relationships, which is very harmful. But we have ways of dealing with that within the criminal justice system. We have ways of dealing with that in the family court system. My concern goes broader as to how you deal with legislation that seems to me overly broad with rather amorphous, undefined um, 
effects, which I don't know how you work it into a legal test that can ever be established to be constitutional, but it has been going on for at least six years in the UK. So my understanding is that they're saying these types of behaviors lead to domestic violence, so they're trying to address pre-crime issues. But they're also, defining this as domestic violence. This is yeah, domestic violence. I know. And it also sounds a lot like the battered woman syndrome defense. It's very, it's the same kind of thing where they don't necessarily say they were subjected to physical violence all the time, but they lived in a controlling household. I think we've had a couple of cases that were more mild like that. So essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to stop women from killing men. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> can, one, that's one way of way. looking at it. You know, Chris will pipe in, I'm sure, on this. We already have fairly robust laws uh, dealing with criminal harassment, threatening conduct, um, you know, mischief uh, charges, and, you know, a fairly robust system when it comes to domestic violence, however you want to define it. By watering it down, it makes the allegation easier, and also it um, lends itself to uh, false allegations uh, in a situation where we see a lot of allegations that are false arise, typically in the case of the dissolution of marriage and uh, for people trying to gain control an upper hand in family court. Yeah. So if you make it even easier um, in terms of what behavior constitutes a crime, uh, it's hard to imagine that the unintended consequences won't be more of these allegations in instances in which people are trying to game the system. If so you just think about how clients come into our office, you know, men and women, and then they say they're charged with a domestic-related offense, whether it's a threat and a harassment or, or an assault, and you go, or a sex assault, how can this happen? Like, how can I be charged with something that I didn't do? And it's a, a sexual with assault With no investigation. With, no, with little to no investigation, just basically taking a statement from the complainant. Just imagine for the second what people are going to say when they're charged with this type of offense by going, I somehow controlled their spending habits and made them depressed. Just think about that for a moment. If the complainant says that he or she has been chronically depressed, it has impacted their ability to fulfill certain daily activities over a course of months, and they felt demeaned, and uh, their spending has been controlled, yet how do you even prove that? It's like, what, what do you get but their bank statements, their visa statements? Like, I, I don't know how you'd... I really am at a loss. I mean, I've never been left without words in my career or in any type of situation. And I don't know how you craft a case on this and then be able to get a conviction unless it's just going to be wrongful convictions across the board, both for men and women. And, and whether the stats say 74% are men, we have plenty of women who come into our office too who are charged with offenses where, where the other party wants to gain leverage in a matrimonial dispute. Well, that's an element of criminal harassment already, that it's um, subjective harm, right? That they're subjectively afraid of the person. That's a, an essential element. And so then they have to uh, look at whether or not it was a reasonable fear. Yeah. Right? So there's still that, that issue. So this is a problem that one of the witnesses for this bill, uh, she's the current director of the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, she was uh, speaking to the, the committee and said, 
that uh, as someone who spent more than a decade working as a Crown prosecutor before joining LEAF, I think there would be significant challenges associated with the prosecution of coercive control. I'm especially concerned about the potential impact of prosecutions on complainants. As drafted, the offense requires proof both that the accused actions could reasonably be expected to have a significant impact on the victim, meaning that it was objectively reasonable to have that impact, and that they have in fact had such an impact, meaning that complainants will need to give evidence about how they've been affected by the conduct. So apparently this is a problem, that the complainants will have to give evidence. Yeah, they should just, they should just be able to say that it's impacted and that's the end of the story. And, and the final paragraph, and this could lead to the re-victimization of women as they navigate the criminal justice system, having to testify about their experiences, having their credibility impugned by bad people like you, <laughs> and opening them up to invasive requests for access to their medical or therapeutic records to call into question whether and how they've been impacted. So that's one of the problems. They want to try and design this in a way that... Um, You're guilty and you have to prove your innocence. It, it, require any proof I, yeah. I, I, I like leaving aside let let so that we're not totally hated by people who may watch this that you know we're not on the side of abuse but we're on the side of a fair process so just drill down for a second how do you get to the core of truth about whether somebody is really impacted from a mental health standpoint without having some real evidence about that and then being able to address it and challenge it. And then what you have to look at is if you have a counselor, you know, a social worker you talk to, are they an advocate for people who are, you know, they just gobble up what's said and they basically just spit it out to say that that constitutes an abuse and they're, they're impacted by this. This is where I have concerns about qualifications of people who do therapy, qualifications of those who we allow to testify in court. I mean, the threshold for an expert in court is slightly better now, but it, at one point it was like trying to straddle the baseboard. It was like, you just have to have done something a little bit in order to be qualified as an expert. This is really watering down evidence and quality of evidence, and it really is potentially dangerous, and it's going in such a bad direction. Well, weren't experts responsible for the recovered memory satanic panic uh, problems? It was responsible for what was the, um, just recently with the, the, the testing with the mother... Uh, uh, mother, what is it, mother risk or something? Yeah, remember the testing of the, the hair right, and the fiber, hair mother's risk, yeah. uh, which you know was found to be incredibly flawed. So a number of women who were accused of various abuses, yeah. uh, this impacted women. So those experts who testified, women were you know estranged from their children because of flawed science. Uh, we see this uh, with um, Dr. Smith pathology, and, uh, Dr. Smith with... Um, the children, the children shaken being murdered, shaken syndrome. baby yeah. syndrome, but you know what was sudden death infant syndrome. We've seen this with all sorts of experts across the board. We saw this in the infancy of when we were dealing with um, DNA evidence, and then eventually, you know, the Center for Forensic Science did an outstanding job in in, in re-regulating and putting in protocols and and reaching levels where they they should be at for proficiency. But just think about this, where you're no longer really in an area of science. You're in an area between art, science, and something else. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's clairvoyance or, or you know, just having the force to be able to tell what somebody's saying. This is really dangerous legislation. I'd be curious to see, aside from that one study, uh, how it's impacted in the UK. And I can't find anything right now about a proper study. Yeah, it's going to be. I'm going to start looking into that. Actually, see how many prosecutions there've been and uh, how many of them. You know, they always talk about 
these types of crimes, anyways, domestics, how um, they drop out of the system before it gets to trial, and then they complain about the conviction rate being too low. So uh, I'm sure there'll be some studies on that. But um, but it occurs to me that this type of violence, if we're going to call it violence, uh, is something that women are fairly adept at. That yeah, men I, are more physical, right? And they grow up, you know, engaging in, in fights and so on as they learn respect for for boundaries, and, you know, in, in one particular way. But women in relational aggression, that's their mode of, of uh, aggression, of their, their mode of getting what they want. I, I actually you know, think more women are guilty of coercive control. I, you know, I, I think coercive control goes both ways. We've had, you know, some of us have had experiences with that. We have a case right now where when we interviewed the client, he was showing clear signs. He was showing clear signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, clear signs of trauma, and he's now with an expert uh, being tested. And it's pretty clear he was manipulated and coerced, and uh, it's had a devastating impact on him. And he's charged. And I can see what's playing out in the family court case, but we, we see this all the time. But it flows both ways. Whether a man is more adept at doing it or a female... I, I think this arbitrary distinction between the genders, it doesn't help anybody. Um, and I think it scares people well, I think it would off. help if, when they're designing the bills, if they think about what are we going to, you know, do we feel the same way about a male victim? So if they, they imagine... Uh, How know, many so, men's shelters yeah. exist in Canada? Uh, one that I know of. So, you know, I, I had the, you know, um, privilege, frankly, being the Cornwall Public Inquiry for a number of years where we looked at systemic abuse um, of men particularly in the Cornwall area. And um, there was some great work done by a lawyer out of London, a personal injury firm who was advocating on behalf of men and then uh, other organizations to try and create the first shelter for men who were abused. And this was male on male, but there was a lot of other dynamics at play. But we don't have shelters or safe centers uh, for men. We really don't. We, we, we don't care about that as far as I'm concerned. And men do suffer, and men do suffer in silence in relationships uh, just as much as women do. From our experience, we've had people who've come into our office, and you can tell in their eyes, you know, after our years of experience and, and our own knowledge of things, who suffers. And both suffer, men and women. And this isn't going to help. Well, I remember talking to somebody... Um about uh, you know the situation in their domestic life in the in the course of you know a divorce and such and and after talking for a full hour, uh, it turned out that she used to hit him on the head with like pans and stuff like that. But when I originally asked him if she ever hit him, he said no. Right. Like he actually had it blocked from his mind or something. Or he didn't want to admit it. He didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. More like you know there are, there there are instances where, you know, men for whatever reasons, however they're brought up. Um, don't think they can talk about this. They're they're scared to talk about it. They feel they won't be, uh, you know, a man. You know, they talk about toxic masculinity. The the flip side of that is what our perceptions of what a man should be, and they don't want to talk about it and bring it forward. But I, I think we have to have at the nub of this. I think we're 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 trying to criminalize every possible bad behavior that may exist in relationships, and we're giving up independence of individuals. Where frankly, you know, extricate yourself from a relationship do certain things. We're not living in an era where there are not access to resources. And I, I, I think, you know, we're, we're trying to really manage at such a micro level bad behavior and relationships that are toxic that it's now going to lead 
to something that I think is an absurd piece of legislation, and I'm I'm really shocked to see what I, I'm, I'm reading in the UK and that there's so little study of it. I think it's it's really important whenever people think about enacting some sort of law uh, that you have to think about the unintended consequences and you have to think about the ability of people to game the system for their benefit. Um, you will have bad actors and the more easy you have a law that facilitates that, yeah. the more you're going to have it. And the stakes are high when people are going through divorces or separations and you're talking about custody, access, things of that nature. It's very high. And yeah. anything in which you water down the system, uh, the crime, the, the offense, so to speak, to be so subjective, um, you know, and people say, well, there may be not that many convictions. You forget or you, you know, not forget necessarily, but don't think about just being charged with an offense. Is life altering? Is life altering. All right. You yeah. know, uh, going through the bail process, um, having the terms and conditions. People lose jobs. People lose, you know, are estranged from their children. Bank the accounts. Whole night, bank accounts. Just think about it. Somebody yeah. who's accused of domestic violence and sexual nowadays will have their bank accounts shut down. If the bank gets wind of it, your bank accounts are shut down. Your loans are called. Your lines of credit, your mortgage. This is, this is really going on. We have a client who's, you know, a significant person who uh, is, we absolutely believe is wrongfully accused. And frankly, the crown we're dealing with where we have a prelim coming up has real serious suspicions about their own case. So it's very cooperative in letting us have the forum necessary to, to litigate this. Um, the bank that he's been with for 25 years is now just shutting down all his accounts, calling his line of credit, calling his mortgage, and f*** you. And that, that's astonishing. Yeah. It's astonishing. I know. I was just thinking, it's a similar scenario with um, bullying online where if people are self-employed and they're using platforms like Patreon and anyone who uses right. PayPal, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. They can be suddenly cut off PayPal where they can't collect money anymore. Yeah. And and it's similar kind of bullying where you're just like, I want you to pay. But I agree with, with your assessment. I think that the narrative out there right now is really downplaying the seriousness of making an allegation where they're being told nothing will likely happen to them. Um, if they get charged, it probably won't go to court to trial. And if they go to trial, they probably won't get convicted. So I think in a way, it, it reminds me of, of high school bullying, where they would pick a target and they bully that person for a while, and then they lose interest and they move on to somebody else. And then the person can come back into the, the group again at some point uh, once they've shifted their target. And, and I think there's that concept with making an allegation that you're, you're just punishing them and it'll be a temporary thing and then they're like, let, let's back. give a concrete example for a moment because people who may want to watch, the few who may want to watch this might think, you know, we're full of shit. You know, uh, we're just criminal lawyers and, and, you know, we're just defending our clients and them. You know, the, the, the accused is always guilty because there's a charge. But we have a case now where charges are going to be withdrawn. We've, we've all worked very closely and, um, there was an audio recording of an assault for which he was charged with. And the audio recording is fantastic. And you can hear the voice of the complainant very clearly, highly aggressive. She is extremely aggressive. 
you can hear slaps and then you hear a major slap and then you hear our client, the accused, um, say something to his son to leave and another child say, don't hit back, daddy. And the complainant screams and our client, in spite of that recording, was charged. I went through pretrials. I disclosed all this and it all the way set for trial. And just on the eve of that, because we've disclosed other things, but somebody put their head to the test to figure it out, is going to withdraw. But just think about that for a second, because if people think we're full of shit, that people are always, you know, we're just defending people, so we're just going to say this. It's not true. There was an audio recording. It was really clear. Talk, because you, you, we broke it down. You did a great job of breaking it down as well, you know, moment by moment. And you could hear it. And then the child says, don't hit back. And the f***ing guy is still charged and had two years under these charges. I uh, know. Uh, it was... It is kind of interesting to break stuff down. You know, I like acting out allegations, too. <laughs> yes, you do. Sometimes it's the best way to determine if it could have happened the way they said, you know, but sometimes it's hard to find a willing partner to be <laughs> the with other person with in the scenario. proper consent. <clears throat> I know, which now we've got little wooden guys that, that I can use to act it out. But, um, Dee, are you low? I'll always, I'll always accept more. Honey, so, would you like a little bit more? I think sorry just a moment as we have Woodward Reserve uh, there you go sweetie pie it's a nice one yeah well you're still full okay go ahead because this is a really interesting point this is true and it's real it's verifiable <laughs> we could prove it and this is a real case and it's a perfect example well, I, I think it's frustrating for people, too, when they actually do have things like recordings. And it's like, how can it take a year to a year and a half to end up getting the charges withdrawn, right? So yeah. so that's a big frustration. And they think that we're not paying attention, that we're not listening to it. But it, No, and, and this was disclosed. We, we disclosed this like a long time ago. Yeah. We just repackaged it so that somebody else would, would hear us. And, and, and the Crown, who did, had an open mind. But because when it happens to, to people and they're falsely accused and when they're charged and stuff, theirs is the only case in their life. And so yeah. it, it's hard to yeah. understand that the reason that the prosecutors can't really look at it or don't have necessarily time to think it over and that they have to have discussions, you know, with the, with their supervisors and, deputy and so crown on, or whatever, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that they simply it just doesn't get a fair look for that long. Yeah, yeah but we, we package this up so that it reads like it's, you know, there's a chart there's a memo, here's the timestamp, this is what you go to, here's the seven seconds to listen to, here's what's uttered, like we lay it out for them. Like it would take literally a 15 to 20 minute read and, and listen and go, yeah, you're right. But what, 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 I'm, what we're trying to get across is it's real that there are false allegations. It's real that people lie for another agenda. In that very same case, you did a great job of looking at the family court documents and found that the complainant falsified civil marriage documents. Yet again. Yet again, <laughs> which is amazing. It's twice already in a, a year to try and establish a civil marriage in order to get greater access to equalization of property. It's amazing. I know. And clearly that type of behavior, the dishonest behavior, is always admissible in court. Um, but what I find is that you have to kind of take a magnifying glass and and almost take the prosecutor's head and push it down like look through the magnifying glass at this thing because you're yeah. not realizing it 
it reminds me of, um, there was a case I helped with down in the States, actually, where a guy was charged with criminal harassment. I wrote about this for, uh, for Quillette, actually. And uh, so he was originally being charged with uh, oh, sexual assaults. And um, the same material that the police looked at uh, to assess whether or not to charge him, which they ended up deciding not to do, was repackaged when I went through it. And I said, you can tell that she knows that she's stalking him and he's afraid of her. So I had to do that same thing, take a magnifying glass and then send it back to the police and say, look at this through another lens. And they ended up charging her and and she pled guilty in the end. Which is an interesting result. But we had another case up in Collingwood not so long ago when if you actually followed the text messages, it was very clear our client was being criminally harassed, stalked, threatened by the complainant. He was the one charged. And... And we had to package together in such a very clear step-by-step process to show the Crown what was going on to try and get them to withdraw, but they were charged mm-hmm. with serious damage. And that was seven counts of sexual assault. I know. You know, and, and so the point, I guess... What happened to the complainant? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. nothing. I'm joking, of course. No, no, I but, do that. No, but that's a, good, that's a good point for people to understand. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's not a gender issue, no. according to us. Yeah. But when you make a false allegation and it's demonstrably provable, yeah. like those messages were clear. You're going to have to call the police to get me to stop from contacting you and following you around. Like what more do you need to do? And nothing happens except our, tri- our client was charged. It lingered for a year and a half. Finally, we were able to get it withdrawn. Yeah, I, I've actually got a theory because I've seen a, a few cases like this that um, I've, I've seen somebody who's... A, women who are stalking a guy use police to continue stalking. So when they realize they can't get access, they can't get responses anymore, the only way to keep in touch with that person is to have them charged, and now they're forced to have you in their life again. Okay, so that's a brilliant point, and it's not just in criminal law. It's in family law. Yes. So certain high-conflict cases where it goes on and on, you continue the relationship through conflict in the family law case. You don't want to settle. You want to fight out stupid shit. But that's your way of still trying to manipulate. goes both ways again, men and women. But you still want to have that contact with the person and continue the conflict because you can't let go. When people are ready to let go, things settle. Good family lawyers, family law lawyers, will tell you when both parties are very motivated to let go and move on with their lives, you can settle a matter. When they're not, it's a relationship through litigation. Yeah. Like, obviously, there are plenty of cases of true abuse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Right? The issue is when you think about these laws in a myopic way in which you just assume that there are no negative bad actors. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. So when you were quoting the present of Leaf saying, oh, we're going to re-victimize by challenging the credibility and whatnot, that's premised on the notion that there are no bad actors or that there are so few bad actors that if there are wrongful convictions, the proper convictions outweigh the, the downfall, which is easy to say when you're not the person who's serving time. Well, we've seen that expressed, like, uh, on on our last podcast. Yeah, I know. I was reading out a tweet from this person who said they're they're willing willing to sacrifice innocent people in order to catch the 
whatever percentage they believe in, yeah. uh, who are probably guilty. So when you're when you're actually in the system and you know you see how the sausage is made, you quickly uh, are disabused of the you know false uh, belief that there are no bad actors in terms of compliance. How do we get that across? I mean, I find this as you know a twofold problem that I think has been a theme through a lot of our our discussions here on our podcast, which is. How do we get our clients and the public to understand and be involved in really understanding what laws are enacted and, and, and what, what will come of these laws, what will come of these criminal laws, and then also getting across to the public that there are false allegations. And, and you're almost punished sometimes in criminal court when you're alleging a motive to fabricate, right? Like, oh, very much so. And, and so there's, it's almost now a stacking against an individual's right to defend themselves because of uh, political correctness, but the terrifying element of this is that there are bad actors who will bring forward charges for an ulterior motive. And how do we get people to buy into that? And there's no it's consequence. Just, no, but that's just life. You know, as an as a species, we ain't that nice. You know, we do bad shit. And the criminal justice system is but a microcosm of what we are as human beings. Sure. I'll tell I'll tell you how you, you get that across. Have people sit in on family court proceedings. Yeah. You know, a couple of weeks of that will disabuse you of the notion that there are saints and uh, devils, um, and you quickly realize that uh, you know the people. And you know this even from your education when you're doing your masters in sociology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> in a previous life, I was a social science researcher in family law in yeah, child yeah. support, uh, and you know. Uh, uh, when the child support guidelines were introduced, I He's did a, smart. I did a summer, actually doing the one eight hundred calls. I was part of a team that, you know, were educating the public about that, and the number of people who would call and who would, you know, threaten to quit their jobs, you know, literally to cut off their nose to spite their face yeah, yeah. right yeah, yeah. just so that they wouldn't have to pay because it was solely based I, on the system i got a great story i was contacted by somebody who was telling me that they used to be a millionaire and all sort of stuff and i ended up i managed to find um one of the decisions in his case and so on the nastiest divorce ever and you know why do they always meet me when they're not millionaires anymore <laughs> but he went so far as to buy a ticket to in outer space so that his wife couldn't get that money. He was the judge had yeah. to order him to sell his ticket and he he lost a lot of money on the value of it. But that's how far he went. He bought yeah. a ticket to outer space to try and make sure she couldn't get his money. Right. So in that instance I it was mostly men to be honest, uh call, you know, calling during that period of time. But you see in family law the gloves come off. And you really see yeah. both <laughs> it's it's gender is irrelevant. I've explained it, it like this to, to people who've been in the courts for you know a year, and uh, you know, once once you get to a year, this is true. I said, just imagine when you walk in there, the judge thinks you're both crazy, and your job is one thing. <laughs> I like that. That's that good. is it. Your job is to convince him you're less crazy than the other person. <laughs> well, that's you know that's family law. Yeah. Right, in and which is why I don't practice it because 
it's too painful. Right? It's, it's endless. Too tough. It just yeah. seems to it's me that tough. every time you win a, a motion of some sort, you're right back in court because the other person, and they forget that it's the kids who are suffering. Yeah. And their kids just end up, you know, watching these two people beat each other over the head with law books. <laughs> well, and, you know, so often, frankly, we, we take a position in our cases trying to appeal to Crown Attorney's and others about being child focused. I mean, when we have cases where there may be a child witness or there's a custody dispute and we go, yeah, it's all great that somebody pushed somebody, but like there are children here and there's conflict and we need to try and be more child focused and bring this level conflict down. And it's, it's so hard to convince well, people. Well, you were talking about that recording and stuff and like how many times do you hear recordings too where you can tell the person's overplaying it going, and you can't even be sure when they say, Oh, stop hitting me. Oh, you know, absolutely. You can't yeah. even be sure if they're yeah. actually being hit or yeah. they know they're recording it. Yeah, and, and they, they lose their minds and they lose all focus. And, and frankly, I credit us because we do this. We try and remain in certain cases where we can to try and convince people that you've got to be child-focused and we've got to bring the level of conflict down and eliminate criminal cases and let these people try and work with their family law lawyers to bring things to a, a you know, reasonable resolution focusing on what's best for the children, but it's f***ing awful. When they do stuff like that, it's bad. But since we're talking about this topic, can we go to prostitution? Well, we, Your favorite we, started, topic. we started getting no. into that. And, and it's kind of connected to the course of control that we started out talking about as well. Yeah. So um, the prostitution laws that we currently have are worse than the laws that were thrown out as unconstitutional. And um, so they all of the same actors rush into Parliament and they're, they're deemed to be... Um, you know, stakeholders, right? So they get, they're involved in the crafting of the legislation. And I've seen in the prostitution laws and in the case that's going back to Supreme Court now via Sullivan and Chan in terms of um, the intoxication defense that it's come up. Well, do you think maybe we should ask the Supreme Court if this is going to be constitutional? Because you can do a reference or something, yep, whatever, right? And they go, no, I, I've seen it said almost verbatim, we don't trust the Supreme Court. Well, to let's, tell, let, to let's go right. back to where we are now. So some time ago, you know, Alan Young led a challenge and, and someone of my law firm who's now a judge was part of it and our firm was part of the process. And it was a challenge to the prostitution laws and they won. And then they were given, the government was given, was it one, one year, year to rewrite the legislation? That's a weird situation when you say it's unconstitutional, but you suspend it for a year. So an unconstitutional law is still active for a yeah. whole year. Yeah, it's 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 difficult, but it was a win. Yeah. yeah. And the idea was that, you know, those engaged in the sex work industry have a right to be able to do that in a safe manner and it recognized their rights and their right to safety. And then the government came back with worse legislation and shocking. And, yeah. And then legislation that uh criminalized the communication, so they focused on uh, the the person seeking out the services and made a minimum punishment of a conviction and a fine, which is astonishing to me. And now recently in NS, and kudos to the lawyer who, who brought that challenge. Too bad it wasn't us, but um, did a great job. And Purely based on hypotheticals. Purely based on hypotheticals. We have the real f***ing situation going forward now. That's pretty much one of his hypotheticals. Right, which is like we have the real thing going forward now, but... But so that case in Ontario has struck down all the provisions, save and except for uh, 286.1, which means you can't communicate to obtain sexual services for consideration. 
But what we're seeing now is that there are at least two cases where they have struck down the majority of the laws related to prostitution. And uh, we're, we're going to be challenging in two cases the same legislation, in addition to 286.1, which is the communication provision, where I'm just astonished that the Crown is even trying to mount a case. But this is serious stuff. That, that is a, a crazy case, the one you're talking about. But, I mean, that's the thing is, it seems like it should be easy. If a law is unconstitutional, just immediately start challenging it, and pretty soon it will be thrown out, you know, as they'll come to realize it. It'll get to Supreme Court, blah, blah, blah. So how but they might not been? even appeal NS. I, I don't even know if an appeal's filed right now. I know. And so there's a bunch of things that prevent it from getting there. But also the decision to make the challenge, you, um, you can use hypotheticals, but you kind of want to have the right case because if you make a challenge with the wrong case then you, and you fail, then it gets yeah. locked in, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's not that simple. And, and we end up but, with, with unconstitutional legislation that's in place for It's so for interesting how paternalistic our government loves to be, including our liberal government, where there are, look, we'll acknowledge that there's human trafficking, which is extremely serious. And we have laws against that that are a separate but we have section. Robot, we have really good laws, strong laws and sentencing laws against that type of human trafficking. But there are those people who want to engage in uh, sex work. There are buyers. They always have. <laughs> it's the oldest buyers, profession. There are buyers, there are sellers. Yeah. No judgment. Knock yourself well, out. I, it's a 21st century. What's the difference between a woman who's up front and says, I want money for sex, and, and a, another person who just says, uh, I'll be with you as long as you pay for my condo and let me do all this other stuff and... You know, there's, there's a lot of living relationships that are basically just codified prostitution, and they're not going after that. So how do you separate? How do you say one thing's a crime and the other thing isn't? I mean, I, I one's think just more honest about it's it. It's inappropriate for the government, I think, to legislate and negotiate that on behalf of people who legitimately want to engage in that. I think the time has come, just like we decide with marijuana, enough is enough. Well, what's the unit of the police that goes after the prostitution? Unit. The morality unit. Yeah, they call them vice morality. Yeah, you, you look up morality unit, Ontario, and you'll see every, every city has their own morality unit, yeah. which is a strange concept to me, that we need morality police. Well, we do. I mean, apparently. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. We've had them for a long time. Yeah. I was looking into what they... I don't think everybody gets that. Say that again. There are divisions that, that used to be called vice morality unit, right? So you have a vice, drugs, gambling, uh, gambling uh, prostitution, and morality. So they and get graffiti. the... And graffiti. That's one graffiti. of the things that was... They, they get to dictate what's morality for us. Like, you know, really. What, do like, do they decide if the graffiti was good? Because there's some graffiti artists, like in the UK, Banksy or whatever, that million are million quite dollars. talented. Yeah, no, that's it. <laughs> So do the morality police look and go, mm, I like that one. We won't charge him. That's art. <laughs> but but what's interesting now is there's that lawsuit also that's brought by the Alliance of Sex Workers. Sex Worker Alliance. Yeah, it's and, an and interesting collective of people, actually. That And, you know, one of the Talk most... about that a little bit, because I think that's interesting. We've been engaged with a couple of societies on behalf of our client, but I think this is a very interesting action. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the most interesting things is that... Um, when you talk about the Bedford uh, challenge before, the, the biggest, the biggest intervener we, we discussed earlier, Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, did not intervene in that case. Right. And the reason is because they're split pretty much down the middle, and it's a very divisive issue. Yeah. So being feminist doesn't mean that you are anti-prostitution. 
<clears throat> there's sex negative, sex positive feminists, and it goes all Explain the way back. That a little bit more. So all the way back in the 80s, there was the big sex war over pornography. And so there's sex positive feminists who believe that it's empowering for women to uh, own their sexuality, be happy with their sexuality, engage in the world in a sexual way without shame. And then there's uh, sex negative people like Andrea Dworkin, Catherine McKinnon, um, who have kind of been on record saying that they don't think that you can actually have consensual sex if it's a man and a woman because yeah, the right. man has power, right? So they think that all sex is rape. And so so this division... They think that all sex is rape. <laughs> so this, this division continues. And all heterosexual sex. Jeez, and I'm the one who drinks. Oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, uh, it's such a, a rabbit hole to go into. Let's pull back out of that. So, yeah. so currently with the prostitution laws, we've got the sex positive uh, alliances that are feminist groups and, and real hardcore, you know, feminist uh, jurisprudence, uh, legal professors, uh, but also uh, working with the sex workers themselves to say, we're not victims. This is something that we enjoy doing. It's a way for us to uh, I remember working with a, a stripper in the, the film industry because they do a lot of body double work and so on. And uh, you can have a healthy attitude where they're just like, I'm an exhibitionist and it makes me laugh that I get paid for people to watch me take my clothes off. <laughs> you know, So it, it didn't have an, a negative effect on her. But then the people who are, who are actually, they're called governance feminists. So the sex negative feminists have the ear of the par of parliament and they're the ones who are crafting laws. Right, and creates what morality is for our society. And, and there's no doubt that we have, you know, there are people who want to engage in prostitution as a business and are quite happy about it and have other interests and pursue other, other interests. I mean, we've had clients in our history who have been charged with various offenses who are engaged in sex work and they have been in school getting their MBAs or doing other things and they're quite intelligent, capable individuals, but this is what they wanted to do. God bless him. It's a free market. Knock well, yourself you, you, out. You've got a, a, you know, a, you know. This has been reported in the media. A criminal defense lawyer, uh, who was or maybe still is, I'm not sure. Who eventually became, uh, you know, admitted to the bar, and was quite open about the fact that she uh, was an escort. An escort. Yeah. Was an escort. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, it's. No, but, leave, but leaving that aside, I mean, I think where we're getting too far in with government is they're too far into our bedrooms, they're f too far into our own morality, and enough is enough. And, if, if, and, and frankly, if, if people, and there are escorts who are men. Who said that? The, was it Trudeau? The, mm -hmm. the, the senior. The, the good, government, the has, no, the government <laughs> uh, has no business in the bedrooms, bedrooms of the nation. The nation. Yeah. Except our current Trudeau doesn't understand that. Nope, not at all. They should be in the uh, breakfast nook. Well, I have nook. to say, Justin, you're doing a better job of bringing vaccines into the country in the last two weeks. But I'm two, watching. Two weeks from when we're recording but this. But I'm watching. It could change. <laughs> By the time this airs, it may be, yeah. it may be moot point, but I'm, I'm watching. But, right. uh, but you know, th this is a very serious point in the fact that, you know, we've come to a point in our lives and, and in 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 the century that we live in, where this no longer should be regulated by government the way they do through the criminal justice system, regulated in a proper way, protect those who want to be in the industry, don't demonize those who want to purchase it, and then uh, criminalize those who do it illegally. Well, the shorthand for the legislation is we want to make it illegal to buy, but not illegal to sell. 
right? Yeah. So that's how the they're launching. But they can't do their business the, that way. The Nordic model. And so, and but so it doesn't some, assist. It no, but it's ridiculous. Help. So yeah. some poor schmuck who, you know, is otherwise incapable of having any relationships because whatever reason. Well, that's a Section 15 argument that I'd be really keen on. Right. So let's say you're, you're having a difficulty emoting with people and having successful relationships and whatever. So you, you want to meet an escort and you have, and the escort's happy to meet you and you can have a good time. But your f***ing communication with them is illegal. And so you're the one who's going to get charged, get a criminal record, get an actual conviction and fined, which will have impact on your ability to have a living in the future or into the United States. This is insane. Well, it, Yet I can buy marijuana. So There's like three marijuana stores on my f***ing street. And it's like, you know... I give myself over to the how fact it, that that's legal. How did it work that marijuana became legal and that there were people incarcerated for crimes that are no longer crimes? You tell me. You tell me. <laughs> yeah. I know. That's, yes. I'm always curious about that. If you have a constitutional challenge that's successful, then there's going to be people who are in jail who uh, are no, have no longer committed a crime. and But then... Well, if you traffic in it, like, well, it's government regulation, right? That's a, you, it's government, government, government. What would happen to the legal monopoly. system if all those people who were incarcerated, once something becomes legalized, if all those people? What were if it was a free market for marijuana? Yeah. Right. God forbid the government shouldn't regulate it. <laughs> right. I bet you there's plenty of people who can grow better, distribute better, price it better if we had a free market. Well, uh, that that actually is why there's still an illegal market because right. there's still a large segment of uh, marijuana consumers who can get a better price and better stock than through the uh, government Well, dispensers. what did we learn, what did we learn from uh, Prohibition? The, the more you make it illegal, the more people want it. Well, and then it goes well, underground, the, and then it creates yeah, it's more crime. Yeah, it's the organized crime aspect that flows from it. That's why there's a push to you know, decriminalize all drug use, right? That's my position. Right? I, and I have had very, very heated arguments online about that because the, the people who are against that have lost close family members and so on to, to hard drugs. And so they... Absolutely. Right. And, so they're and, very passionate about it. But, no, but, but, but criminalizing... Sh everybody thinks yeah. that you solve a problem by making it a crime. Exactly. That's a, that's the main problem with this issue about uh, the course of control. Passing laws doesn't fix antisocial behavior. Right, doesn't fix a bad okay. partner. That's it. Does not make it easier for people to not be in course of uh, course of relationships, and it's the same thing with drugs. That it does not. Uh, you know, the criminalization, it's made a huge profit for a certain segment of the population. Uh, Keep of, going, you're right. Of which, uh, you know, both the, the crowns, you know, what would happen to the federal prosecution, uh, the public prosecution unit if we legalize crime tomorrow, or uh, legalize... Well, uh, they, they could be employed in the regulation. Legal, legal. Yeah, we could switch them from, you know, from prosecution to policy, regulation, taxation. There would be... You know, health care. God forbid we should funnel that money into health care. If, if there was a decriminalization of all drugs, like in Portugal, it would be... There'd be a dramatic decrease. Would there be fentanyl? Probably yes. not. 
Yeah. No, I think what I think what would happen is that you would see a leveling where there would be work towards uh, drugs that would be safer, giving okay. similar effects. You would see industry come in, and you would see uh, a robust movement within private industry to make safe drugs. Totally. And it would be regulated, and then we could deal with addictions. We could deal with all the other impacts, and we could lessen the severity of all this and lower incarceration rates and lower the deaths and focus on health care, and we would see a positive influence on our own uh, society and on health in general if we took that step. It's a bold step, and it takes balls, and nobody has it yet. The reality is that uh, if you go and purchase true. powder cocaine today, it will likely be spiked with fentanyl because of the low cost of that particular product. Imagine and the size, like you can import it in a lot smaller yeah, quantity. No, ab absolutely, absolutely. So, imagine if you could actually purchase cocaine uh, from a reputable uh, uh, company that you're sure know what you're buying. Know what you're buying. Uh, what would you know? How many overdoses would occur? Look at what they have to do. Look what they have to do in British Columbia with the safe injection sites. That's it. Look at the argument here in, in Toronto. What we do with I, safe I've injection heard sites. That there's a little bit of misinformation about how effective the safe injection sites are. I, I, who cares? I can't recall. We need to protect these vulnerable individuals who are addicted, and we're not doing enough. And there have been a lot of people speaking out, and you know we have a lot of criminal lawyers speaking out. Yeah. President of Criminal Lawyers Association, John Struthers, has spoken out about this. Many others, addiction advocates, have spoken out, and they're all right. You know, we need to take more bold steps to protecting these individuals, and we got to stop with the morality angle. No, but the morality angle is going to get us f***ing nowhere. It, for, forget about morality. That's easy word, defense criminalization, <laughs> criminalization has... Sorry, I couldn't resist it. Stop. Criminalization doesn't assist in eradicating a, uh, uh, an antisocial behavior. Mm. Like, that's, that's not what, you know, what makes us drink and drive less in this day and age is not Uber. the penalty, it's a change in social mores. That's okay? good solution-oriented thinking, though. Instead well, of trying to get if, people to stop that, drinking, let's provide them a, an easier way. There was actually a really interesting... Well, but interesting, that's true. They, we, they, we've done that, actually. There's an interesting and service in, in Vancouver. I don't know if they have one like it here, but... You can um, call a place that will drive you home in your own car, so you don't have to worry about yeah. having to go back. Oh, and that's very nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And some bars have implemented that. I mean, that's just smart. But you know, let's look at other things. I mean, I'm not going to. Uh, this is going to be really controversial. But you know, people who have uh, certain paraphilias, sexual paraphilias, okay, mm -hmm. and the debate will be about yes, it's extremely bad if it culminates in a, a victimization of somebody, but you can't seek help without being charged. Let's yeah. say you have, uh, you know, a particular desire that's bad from the perspective of it can cause harm on some other individual. A compulsion. It's a compulsion. It's a disorder. And it can cause harm. And somebody has enough insight to recognize it causes harm. But if I come forward to a therapist... That will be reported to the police, and I will be charged. Yeah. So, 
Let's think out of the box for a moment. In terms of controversy, so there is actually um, a group that's very visible online. They call themselves MAPS, uh, Minor Attracted People. And so there's been a, a huge sort of fear that that uh, MAPS will be... We're so going to get a lot of emails that's going to vilify LG us. Thank you. We'll be made part of the LGBT community, right, yeah. as a... So, but that's not what the, the purpose of those groups are. The Is that NAMBLA just rebranded? <laughs> right. Oh, that's such an intriguing thing, too, because there were high-profile people involved in, in NAMBLA. But um, so, so these are people who understand that they have some sort of a, a problem, right. and yeah. they want to not act on that. They can't make the thoughts go away, but they want to try and, and uh, create communities to support each other to not act and, and find ways to avoid and acting on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, so. so I say, don't. Uh, in order to uh, minimize victimization of anybody, and but but here's the problem. The problem is if you have this, and you recognize it's an issue, yeah. and you have that much insight, and you say, "I need help," but where do you go? Yeah. And where do you go? You go to a therapist. You call up a therapist who specializes in sexual deviance, and you go for a couple of sessions, and you say, "Here's my issues." It's going to get reported. You have a duty to report. Then you get charged. Then you're in criminal justice system. I'm not saying it's not justified if, if there's real harm. That said, we might do a better job of preventing further harm if we took a better, more insightful approach as to how to address this. It's not just always the blunt you know, instrument of the criminal justice system that will solve these issues. And we keep wanting to... Yeah. Whether it's a conservative government or a liberal government, hopefully there will never be an NDP government, but whatever it is, they just love criminalizing So, yeah. So um, this is known to be a paraphilia or a, a criminal behavior that's unfixable, right? That's essentially the, okay, the way so it's seen. We have to be careful to understand that certain disorders are lifelong. They're not treatable in the sense that you're going to take an antibiotic and it goes away. But they can be managed. So you can put into place modalities and therapies to try and manage the behavior and the risk, particularly with those who are motivated. But when you prevent access to that type of help because you will be charged by opening up to somebody, I think that's harmful to our society. And this is where we talk about drugs and prostitution and how we look at these types of offending. We need a better framework of analysis as to how we want to move forward as a society and try and deal with these issues and not just foist it on the criminal justice system and have people charged and go through the process and we're not farther ahead. That doesn't fit on a bumper sticker mm -hmm. and that's a problem. Because uh, governments like to run on what can fit on a bumper sticker, yeah, a slogan, right? But is it a mental illness then? Because there's an it's increased a disorder. It's a disorder. there's it's an a disorder. increased tolerance for for mental illness where they don't want to stigmatize people, but of course there's always got to be boundaries, right? Well, I personally think that anybody who can't follow the laws and do things like not kill people, right? That's, that seems fairly simple to me. I always think there must be something mentally wrong with them if they, if they can't not kill somebody. <laughs> Look, there, there are, we, we as a society know where there are certain boundaries that can't go over. And there are, there are disorders. But how we treat these individuals, 
how we want to help people, how we want to try and uh, eliminate as much risk as possible, is how we judge ourselves as a society. When we take those who we would normally despise the most and treat them with civility and try and help them and not vilify them, we are a better society. But that's not what we do. And I think we have to have a more enlightened approach uh, when we deal with issues like prostitution, when we deal with issues like certain sexual deviances. We need to have a better approach because what we have right now is over-incarceration. We're not necessarily reducing risk and we're not serving the public in a better way. It's, well, fun, it's funny you talk about over-incarceration <clears throat> because, um, you know, there was this... Uh, you know, landmark case by the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, Peru, um, in which the government, you know, had introduced uh, conditional sentences, which were custodial sentences served in the community, meaning house arrest. And at the time... We had a better... At the time... i got to be really careful about what I'm about to say, yeah. but, you know, we, yeah, we right. had a Supreme Court back way back when who really understood i think in my opinion how we had to deal with incarceration issues but what was interesting was uh in describing conditional sentences the supreme court uh had relied upon social science joe uh can you assist she's running low i'm, I'm sorry i gotta save this for myself okay <laughs> uh the supreme court had had noted that um, we had one of the highest incarceration rates uh, at I think per it capita. I think it was a hundred and twenty three per one hundred thousand people. All right, one of the highest incarceration rates, and the Supreme Court was saying, "Look, the government introduced this in order to reduce the number of uh, people incarcerated, and so so." And this decision was in the early 90s, uh, mid-90s, uh, the Peru decision. And I was just pitching... I'll have to look that one up. I was P-R-O-U-L-X. Oh, okay. Right. I was thinking P-R-U-E. No. Okay. Um, and I was pitching a conditional sentence, uh, you know, six months ago for a guy. And I looked at the stats to see what we were down to. And instead of 123 per 100,000, you know what we got down to? 122? 121. Okay. I was going to say 121. <laughs> That's exactly it. So, you know, with the introduction of the conditional sentence regime, we then went through um, a particular government that, you know, basically took a, away for almost every sentence. Uh, and we have done in 30-odd years almost no movement towards reducing our rate of incarceration, reliance upon incarceration as the number one tool in our, in our box. Mm. Yeah. All right? Except and for Gladio reports. Gladio reports? Gladio reports. Gladio reports. They oh, are please. concerned. In my, in my opinion, well, and, that's, and I that's why it's gone from 123 to 121, because if you don't qualify for Gladue, you get jail. All right, straight But that's jail. still, you know, even though you have Gladue reports, we still incarcerate 
way too many people of we indigenous backgrounds. We should probably explain what that is, though. I'm glad you were pro- Yeah, Chris? Sure, okay. So, uh, again, it's uh, named after a Supreme Court of Canada decision in which it was recognized that there was an over-incarceration of um, Aboriginal or Indigenous uh, Canadians. Uh, Canadians. As such, there's a specific section of the criminal code that says, again, um, when it comes to principles of sentencing, the you know courts should recognize the role that uh, systematic racism, uh, systematic abuse of um, first Canadians, yeah, and and the conditions that they've lived in for a long time. Exactly, uh, and recognize that in terms of uh, establishing appropriate sentences. So what we have are Gladue reports named after the Supreme Court of Canada decision in which with a female perpetrator in that case, right? Yeah. In which um, uh, very good court services staff uh, try to you know come up with a report that explains it contextually uh, culturally the experiences of the uh, offender in that particular case uh, so as to have an impact on the appropriate sentence either the length of sentence or the type of sentence that's imposed which, which leads into culturally appropriate sanctions so there was very good work done on sanctions that would be culturally relevant to the offender to address systemic discrimination and trauma. And so that has been a step forward. I still don't see it as making that much of a dent no. really in sentencing. And that's been translated now into when we deal with um, Canadians of black heritage looking at systemic discrimination and trauma as a result of that, I still see primarily lip service to that, not really looking at it. And the majority of people who consider this, who have never been in trouble, would think this is just bullshit, and it's not. Um, but but it's a step forward. Gladue uh, has, that whole principle has had a dramatic effect on bail. Yeah, good point. Uh, because through the Gladue programs in courthouses, including for not just residential, but also uh, offer uh, residents, um, uh, Indigenous um, uh, Canadians, it assists in getting bails that in the in the past they would not. All right. They would just be kept, uh, you know, uh, until they essentially pled guilty or uh, ran uh, trials. So it's it is successful. But realistically, our society, you know, we I don't think I'll ever get bored with law. It's like, yeah, because you came to it late in life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I came to it way too early. I, think, I don't know. Like, I I maybe I'm just a geek this. or something, but like listening to this stuff and all the technical. So I it's just great. Love and, it. and this is what we do. Look, you know, behind the scenes, this is what part of this is about is to understand what the f we actually think about and why we give a sh. And we do care. And why it's fascinating. It is. And, and, you know, people are people and they have issues and they have traumas and, and things explain why they do certain things. And, and there are some cases where do it's... Do you ever get bored, Chris? <laughs> Not, I think no. he gets bored with billing and that really bugs me. 
this, yes, all everything Leave that, that is administrative I never get bored with that. and billing, I get bored with. But individual people, when you actually deal with them and you learn about their history and stuff like that, rarely do you come across somebody who's just a jerk. All right? Which is how we kind of pass laws and we expect people to go through. It's just rational people who just decided, I'm just going to be a jerk and I'm just going to do whatever I feel like. It is so much more complex, the individual who comes to it. All right? And by the time that they're arrested, yes, there's a complainant. Uh, and if they committed the crime, there's a victim and so on and so forth. Nor a deceased. <clears throat> or, well, there are still a victim. Um, but rarely does a guy come before you or a lady come before you that is just has nothing redeemable and they're just like, yeah, I knew, uh, I knew stealing was a bad thing and, uh, I've got nothing. There's no real reason why I did this and I just did X, Y, and Z. People have interesting stories. You know, when you get into their psyche and you understand what their life was like in their history, you know, we had the experience today speaking to somebody by Zoom who was in jail. And it's, you know, there's, there's stuff back there, back in, you know, 30, 40, 50, That's 60 years ago that impacted them. And it's really... You were talking about this concept that where there's smoke, there's fire. Oh, if they're guilty, you know, it's like it's a thing to be guilty, right? These are really fascinating people. Every yeah, single are, case. Yeah. You have to know the people involved in every single case to understand the case. You have to understand what's happened to them, how they are now, what their struggles were. Yeah. And, you know, it's not all of our clients. No. But we have really, we have clients with stories, you know, who are humans, who've experienced bad things. I have a book called Storytelling for Lawyers that that talks about how being a great lawyer is an act of storytelling. You have to be a good... Well, when you're in a jury trial. Yeah, but, but the story, unlike, it, unlike no, fiction no. novels, it has Even to be based on facts. But you have to somehow um, be able to craft, like, explain things, put a picture in people's heads. Humanize our clients. Humanize, you know. Because an accused is not humanized. I know. We have to humanize our people. That's, that's, you know, today I was speaking with the Crown to resolve a matter. This is an individual. Are there funds and trust? Yes, there Just were. Just kidding. <clears throat> an individual who was charged with impaired driving three times. Well, this individual is uh, Tamil, uh, you know, uh, part of a, an ethnic minority in Sri Lanka. His drinking is related to the trauma he suffered during the Civil War, right? Yeah. Seeing really bad things happen. And the issue, of course, is will sending him to jail protect the public or sending him to rehab protect not only the public but also himself? Because at the end of the day, that's what really matters. And it's easy to impose a mandatory minimum and say, well, we just throw him in jail for 90 days. That's what the, you know, the criminal code, code says, says on your third. That's, I'd your like third. to pause for a moment, though, because that is an important aspect that I think people forget. Because especially with online communications and how fast things move and how people are anonymized and stuff, I think that people like punishment too much. And they forget. Oh, we're a punishment culture. We are. Yeah. We're, we're, we're hardwired for it. 
All right. And the politicians push that. Especially them. watching other people get punished. And it's difficult to articulate I mean, in, oh, yeah. a, in, in, in a, a way. I noticed it my... Oh, she's going to have to forgive me for this. My four-year-old loved watching other kids get in trouble. And that's when I first realized this is something in human nature, where you love watching other people get punished for things. Absolutely. Uh, and which is why the great thinkers... I don't know if it's innate... Well, I don't know about that, but the great thinkers, you know, there's a, a very good, um, there's a, a, a jurist by the name of uh, Mel Green who wrote this. The great Mel Green. He, he is great. He is. He, he wrote an article about sentencing yeah. in the Criminal Lawyers uh, Association magazine a million years ago. And an eye for an eye which is often invoked as a concept of in sentencing of, uh, for punishment, was actually a concept of restraint. Yeah, I know. That's actually right? a really important point. It's a very important point, right? And, and that, because that's our impulse. Say that again so people get it. Right. So because before an eye, eye for an eye, uh, it was... Uh, you're justified to take somebody's eye out. You're, you're, <laughs> you're the, justified to take somebody's life for an eye. And, and that, uh, that, that dictum of an eye for an eye is to limit the level of retribution. Right. Instead of taking somebody's you life, you only take an eye. Exactly. This right? is like the Merchant of Venice, too. Right. Right. But it's a concept of con of restraint. Right. Yeah. And and that is very hard to articulate on a bumper sticker for the public to recognize. And it's something that you know are which is why nobody runs on it. You know, no it's no politician runs on. Which that's is, how these which, laws get passed, too, which because is, it's just like, do you love women or do you hate them? That's exactly we it. We want to protect them from coercive uh, right. you know, behavior. Yeah, right. let's do it. You yeah. get more votes. That's exactly So restraint, it. judicial restraint. And again, I'm not saying it's too. wrong. It's fundamental. Yeah. It's, so, it's fundamental. It's criminalizing every possible bad behavior and punishing and throwing people in jail and not using our f***ing heads to get at the root of issues. We just don't want to do that. It's more politically expedient to criminalize all this shit, pander to the interest groups, and just slough it off. That's it. Or else it's you, ridiculous. Or else will be slagged as you know anti-feminist, anti-woman, uh, not caring about victims, so on and so forth. As opposed to saying, "Well, look, there are different interests in society. Uh, it's a more complex and nuanced issue, and we can't just you know." Uh, pass these laws that make everything a crime. Uh, one, it won't have an effect that you want. Two, it'll never happen to me. Well, no, it'll never happen to me right. until you walk into our office and go, how the f*** did this, this happen to me? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. That's almost the first thing I hear from every person who contacts me. I think me we've said this on every single podcast. Yeah. And I'm like still... In, I never thought this I could still, happen I think I started off... And I went crazy because I, I just, it, how do people not realize yeah. that how are they so disengaged from what goes on to realize these are the laws that are being passed, this is the laws of Canada, and Because can they be really think it only happens to guilty people. Yeah, they actually correct. think that. It's so amazing. Correct. It's, it's, it's amazing to speak to mothers 
of yeah. the accused. Yeah. All right, mothers of the accused, who just, who just cannot. Well, no, it's bigger fathom. than that. Your job is to protect your child, and then this happens, and you can't do anything. Right. No, that's exactly. You feel and, helpless. And it's and it's almost like it's 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 like a veil has been lifted from them, and they say, "How can this possibly be happening? This cannot be the system." And you say, "Yes, ma'am, this is a system. This is it." Welcome to your government. Pay attention. Stand up and vote. Ask questions. Be a participant in the democratic process. But it's not just vote. It's not easy. It's not just vote. It's we have to move away from the pandering. We have to move away from the notion that a slogan will cure anything. Everything is more complicated. That's just... You know, it takes more than 280 characters. It, it 140, 280, whatever it is. It is so... Anything, we need, we need, anything that somebody tries to sell you with a slogan is false. Do you know what I've seen, though, is that um, you know words are just uh, battle tools online. And so this idea of due process for all has now gotten taken over by do justice for all and that's a victim-centered approach right well right? i think so, we should maybe talk about that next time because that's a whole other topic on itself called I natural know. justice you know natural justice we've got so many issues to uncover there and, and and to unpack they can mess with the words due process but they can't mess with natural justice all right guys to all another right. week of fighting for the underdog that's it